Digital Gonzo, episode 153, recorded Monday the 28th of October 2013, Ghostwatch. So welcome live this Halloween night to the first ever TV Ghostwatch. That's the scene in uh, Fox Hill Drive in Northolt, our outside broadcast units are there, that's the house where it might all happen tonight, or it might not, we shall see. To celebrate Halloween this year, we've gone back to one of the scariest memories for many British 30-somethings. Screened only once on Halloween in 1992 and billed as a live broadcast from the most haunted house in England, this documentary frightened the nation witless, garnering the BBC 30,000 phone calls. 21 years on, after only having seen it once more in between the years, sometime around 2002 when it was finally released on DVD, Sharon and I ventured back into Ghost Watch. Now, what I'd suggest, if you've never seen this, is that you make it your Halloween evening viewing. If you can get to one of Britain's final remaining walk-in DVD stores, you may also be able to pick it up on disc for under a tenner. Failing that, you can also find it on Vimeo in three parts by following the links in the show notes. Now, this show will spoil the whole thing, so only listen if you have no intention of watching or if you don't mind going in knowing everything. Spoilers and some rather disturbing discussion will follow after the music. You have been warned. No creaking gates, no gothic towers, no shutter windows. Yet for the past ten months, this house has been the focus of an astonishing barrage of supernatural activity. Wow. It's just like an earthquake. Boom! Why, do you think Mr. Pipes has come to hurt you? I'm going to go and get help, all right? My family are telling the truth. We're all telling the truth. So welcome live this Halloween night to the first ever TV Ghost Watch. The premise is this. Sarah Green, a presenter of Blue Peter, the classic British kids magazine show, is at a house on Fox Hill Drive in Northolt, Greater London, occupied by a divorced mother and her two girls. They have apparently been tormented by an aggressive poltergeist, and Sarah and her crew are there to try to get some footage of supernatural activity. It cuts back and forth between the family vigil and the studio, with Michael Parkinson interviewing a parapsychologist about the events as they unfold. The phones are being manned by a bank of BBC operators headed up by Green's husband, Mike Smith. Red Dwarf star Craig Charles is also outside the house in Northolt and chats with an enthusiastic street full of rubbernecking neighbours, many of which have some stories about the area to tell. Over the course of what feels like an excruciatingly long evening, more and more creepy events unfold at the same time as we learn more information about some of the house's former occupants. The girls speak of an apparition they call Pipes for his habit of banging on the walls and the floor in the manner of plumbing noises. He is described as being disfigured and wearing a long black buttoned dress with the habit of watching them while they sleep and attacking them without warning. Eagle-eyed viewers spotted several half-second appearances from this being, standing in a crowd reflected in a darkened window, glimpsed standing by a curtain. There are multiple angry and confused phone calls into the show from viewers who have spotted pipes in the preceding footage and those who are experiencing creepy goings-on in their own homes. 
Digging deeper, apparently in the 19th century, a baby farmer named Mother Seddons had lived in the house and killed several children while there. Later in the 1960s, a disturbed man named Raymond Tunstall, convicted for molestation and assault, stayed in the house as a lodger. It seems he was tormented by the shade of Mother Seddons and began dressing and behaving as her, eventually committing suicide in the cupboard under the stairs. At a very tense moment, one of the girls is caught creating the banging noises herself, and it appears the whole thing was a fabrication. The parapsychologist in the studio, Dr. Pasco, having built up the story, is crestfallen at the devastating blow into her argument of paranormal existence. She is sneered at and ridiculed by a cartoonishly dislikable American skeptic. After this, Pipes, who it would appear is a fusion of the ghosts of Seddon and Tunstall, begins to make more pronounced appearances in a bid to ensure the girls are kept in the house. The locked cupboard under the stairs is opened and Pipes is effectively released. By the end it becomes apparent that the nationwide viewing of the haunting has resulted in a form of seance that empowers and emboldens the ghost into taking over the BBC network, first playing with the video feeds to give a false reading on the house based on earlier footage and then in a far more pronounced attack on the studio, blowing lights, ethereal wind, everybody scared away and one bewildered and apparently possessed Michael Parkinson. There was a storm of telephone outrage as the show proceeded, and especially with the nasty, broken-off way with which it ended, and which left kids, and I dare say a few adults, unable to switch the lights off for fear Mr. Pipes would get them. So many phoned in that switchboards got tangled up, which reinforced viewers' fears that the BBC had been taken over by a ghost. Thing is, this 90-minute drama was in fact a clever hoax, written by Stephen Volk, and originally intended to be a six-part drama with a final live broadcast episode. The Beeb went for just the one final episode in one go, and despite the drama slot, nonetheless convinced a great deal of people in not dissimilar fashion to Orson Welles' cleverly pitched radio presentation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. In that production on Halloween 1938, some 54 years prior, Orson read alarming news reports of alien invasion over the radio that led many Americans to become genuinely panicked. Volk was inspired by the works of M.R. James, who wrote several classic ghost stories such as Whistle and I'll Come to You, A Warning to the Curious, and A Ghost Story at Christmas, all of which were adapted for television. James had crafted his own rules of ghost story writing involving a slow build-up with everything unusual held back and hinted at until the climatic ending. Kind of might be the woman in black as well. Mm. Uh, Volk also drew from the BBC series Quatermass and the Pit, in which after five episodes of establishing a serious tone and creeping doubt, spent the sixth and final with proceedings going completely to hell. Many people demanded to know why this was not billed as drama and outlined or billed further and more obviously as drama and outlined as a fantastical fabrication from the off, somewhat missing the point. It was a satire of television itself and how we tend to believe what we're presented with as fact. It was also a rather ahead-of-its-time commentary on reality TV. When I mentioned this on the Ghostbusters show, I received many emphatic responses. It seemed listeners who remember it were in the minority, but sincerely wanted to hear it discussed. And here on Gonzo, we're all about the minority of very passionate people. Only Sharon and I are on after everyone else chickened out. So we're now going to talk about the effects it had then, and what it's like to watch now, how it's dated, and what remains its stronger aspects. 
Uh, so my first question here is, what has this clearly influenced that has come afterwards? Well, the thing that struck me the most was actually the brass eye. Explain. The controversial response to the show, which we're going to go into in a bit, mm. um, is something that was repeated with Chris Morris's uh, brass eye. Specifically um, the paedophilia special. Specifically the paedophilia uh, special, um, which I think... Interestingly, if you look at it, taps into a similar sort of fears. Although Ghost Fear Watch, exactly. Mm. Although Ghost Watch was um, sort of it was on Halloween, it was you know billed as this um, uh, supernatural thing. The core of the fear that came out of it is well, the the two people that the ghost was supposedly um, drawing from were both uh, abusers and killers of children. Um, and it was two young girls who were being um, harassed and one of them particularly was being openly attacked, it appeared. She kept getting scratches on her face and her arms um, and that was genuinely distressing. They, they looked a bit like cat scratches, but in all honesty, the way they were positioned, I mean, somebody mentioned that they looked like they could have been fingernail cuts. They could quite easily have been fingernail cuts. It really is effective in terms of preying on a double and to a degree a very difficult to understand and comprehend fear that a lot of people have both for their children if they're adults and for themselves in the shoes of a child being attacked mm. that's a very very vulnerable time in our lives and it's where most of our primal fears are actually um, established if you've got a, a, a fear of dogs now as an adult chances are you may have been chased by a big dog or even a dog that wasn't all that big, but just looked big because you were tiny. I know Paul Shotton hates dogs because of that. Well, yeah. it makes perfect sense. And it actually, it comes back to, um, there's a line in Stephen King's It, which remains one of my favourite horror stories to this day. I mm. love it. It's, it's incredibly effective, despite the fact that it's incredibly long and involved. Good Halloween reading, folks. If you're only going to read it on Halloween, it would probably take you several years. It's about 1,200 pages long. Start at nine in the morning. You might have it finished by the end of the night. Depends how fast a reader you are. Um, but no, um, one of the comments he makes in that is that um, children are very easy to frighten. You can pick one thing, and if you can tap into something that they are genuinely scared of, it's very simple to uh, to terrify them. Adult fears are much more complex, mm. and a lot of the time, uh, whenever uh, the, the beastie in it is trying to um, attack an adult, they have to do it through someone else. They have to make that adult fearful for someone, someone else. else. Um, and I think that's where uh, a lot of this, the fear in, in this and the fear in the, the paedophilia special on Brass Eye, was emphasising and the way the people who reacted badly to it interpreted it, ridiculing mm. adult fears for children. But the fact is, I, I don't personally believe that they were trying to imply that these fears are a not genuine no, or a bad not. thing. No, but you can't tackle fear without talking about it. You have to bring it out into the open. Chris Morris's programmes are all about hysteria. Absolutely. The paedophilia special caused hysteria... We're going to do a brass eye show at some point. But the paedophilia special caused the kind of hysteria it was making fun of. Absolutely. And I would like to point out that Fear while... Fear is fine. Hysteria is not. But while the BBC were getting complaint after complaint after complaint about this show, 
Jimmy Savile was raping 12-year-olds in his dressing room and nobody was doing jack shit about it. Too soon? <laughs> Going back to my original question about uh, what has this clearly influenced, Brassai, from the point of view of the fact that everything is delivered in a sort of a deadly serious manner by actor, actors of varying calibres, uh, it's, it's got that sort of real feel. Uh, so um, Day to Day came... Uh, two years after this in 94, Brass Eye came a year or so later. Well, I think wasn't, wasn't Chris Morris by that point, he was off the BBC and onto Channel 4. I don't think the BBC liked him. Yes. <laughs> he was too effective. <laughs> it is important to note, by the way, that the amount of flack this got... Let's just talk about the controversy briefly here before we carry on. Uh, many viewers believe the events to be true and some controversy ensued after its airing. This is all in spite of the fact that Screen One was a drama slot. The programme aired uh, with a written-by credit at the start and a cast list was published in the BBC's Radio Time Listings magazine. Now, basically, people reading the cast list would go, Sarah Green as herself, da 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 and probably stop reading after the third or fourth person so they didn't get to the people playing someone else. But it, this is the thing, though. It wasn't billed as a documentary. It wasn't really... Advertised as real. Okay. The parents of children who shouldn't have been watching it, frankly. I was. I it was, was nine twenty-five at night when it started, and eleven o'clock when it finished. And we just watched uh, a bike back, and this guy with a mullet and Timmy Mallet glasses was going. I put my kids in front of this, and then I went into the other room, and I was doing some paperwork, and then they come in at ten o'clock and said they were scared. Sir, if you put your kids in front of something. About ghosts on Halloween at 10 o'clock at night, you have no right to complain. Uh, I, I was Lest just ye about, be labelled a shitty parent. I was just about to turn 14 when I saw this, and it put the shits up me, I can tell you that much. Okay. The BBC was besieged with phone calls from irate and frightened viewers and the British tabloids, who have always been known to be even-handed, and other newspapers criticised the BBC the next day for the disturbing nature of some scenes, such as Green's final scene, where she is locked in an understairs cupboard with a howling ghost and Parkinson's eerie possession scene. Yeah, I, I think any British tabloid getting a pop-in at the BBC can be safely um, discounted, really. Beeb freaks out nation with Spook Doc. Nearly 20 years later, the power of television here proved as potent when Richard Dimbleby made an April Fool of the Nation on Panorama. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavour. Well, 35 years on from that, the BBC has done it again, made a lot of people feel very foolish. Ruth Baumgarten... You meant to fool people, though, didn't you? I mean, the whole piece wouldn't have worked unless people were taken in. No, we never meant to fool the audience. We meant to create a good ghost story for Halloween. We wrote a screenplay, we rewrote it countless times, we invented this family, and we thought this would be the ideal contemporary setting for a modern ghost story. But you didn't use actors, you used factual presenters. You meant people to be deceived. We built it as drama, and we surrounded the factual presenters with actors who had appeared that very week in some of the most popular programs on television, like Casualty, in commercials, so that we felt that apart from really making sure that every possible way, short of having arrows inside the program, was taken to tell the audience that this is drama. But not all of them spotted that, and some of them are here. Just one second. Let me, let me bring in Mr. Lenger there, Eden Lenger. You saw it. You were taken in. What's your reaction? Yes, sir. Thank you. Firstly, I must just say uh, the kind word is that it was actually, theoretically, a brilliant piece of television. That's 
the nice part out of the way. But I also think that you betrayed the trust that the audience has within the BBC. You toyed with the emotions of the audience because the audience weren't actually sure, or I wasn't actually sure, if it was fact or fiction, if it was live or if it was in fact a drama. There were allusions before the programme and in some of the papers, I don't get the Radio Times, many people don't either, I hate to say, that it was, you weren't sure because it was Michael Parkinson and the others, whether it was fact or fiction, and as the programme went on, it became obvious you were getting sucked in. In addition to which... Well, hang on. You made sorry. a lot of points there, and I'm sure other people want to make some as well, and I want some answers. But let me bring in Susie Dixon over there, because you watched it with your two small sons. Yes, yes that's right. I was actually under no illusion at all that it was a spoof. I read as many reviews as I could, and um, we actually built our Saturday night with the children around watching it. But I'm... your son was upset? Yes. Within five minutes, nothing had happened. He reacted instantly... He was very distressed instantly to something very sinister in the presentation and nothing had actually happened. And I think you mentioned that you were anxious to put it against uh, the ghost story, against a contemporary background. I think it's that actually that made it most sinister. It was the background that most people in this country live in. Richard Brooke, I mean, that is the problem, that it was very realistic and whatever was intended, it did fool an awful lot of the people and there isn't any such thing as the watershed in the real world. Well, I think, I think there is such a thing as the watershed in the real world. The, the BBC have this policy. They're very clear about it. I'm, I'm very sorry that, uh, that, that any children watch this. It was unsuitable for children. Let me make that completely clear. We have no, no worries about that point. Uh, the, the watershed begins at 9 o'clock. This policy is published in the Radio Times every week, and the BBC also use other arenas to make this policy clear. I don't think it's fair to say we hide behind it. It's a published policy. It begins at 9 o'clock. This programme began at 9.25. Uh, nothing very uh, bad happened in it for about 40 minutes, though I, I take your point and I must respect it that you, you say there was a sinister atmosphere in the presentation, but I haven't, uh, I have never thought that particularly about it. Martin Plum, you want to make a point? I didn't know it was a drama. I've got three children of 14, 12 and 10, and Michael Parkinson is a well-respected and mature fatherly figure. Sarah Green and Mike Smith are synonymous with children's television. Yeah. I looked at the start of it, vetted it, and thought... And they weren't unsupervised. They were, they were watching it with my mother-in-law. And I, I just thought that it, it was going to be a very safe... And were they frightened? Well, yes, I mean, to, to the degree that... I agree that nothing seems to happen for 40 minutes, but we, I was working with my wife in another room, and my youngest child, who was 10, rushed out of the room, vomited in the hall, um, was absolutely ashen-faced, wouldn't even talk about the thing for two or three hours and it was at one o'clock in the morning that I got her to talk about it and she, what, wouldn't, she wouldn't sleep in her own bed for two nights. What about you now, you three girls on the front? Natasha, McPeak, yes, you, you watched it. What did you think of it? Well, I thought it was one sick joke, the way that it was based around children, the way that the children were involved in the actual story. Why did you have to bring the, story, the children into it? But it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny at all. It, it is a question, I think, Ruth. I mean, a lot of people have, have written in and rung in saying this. It's a question of bad taste in the end, that, that you couldn't have had... Why couldn't you have had a kind of commoner garden criminal as the poltergeist? It, it, in the end, it was, a, it was a child molester who possessed children because they were in puberty. I mean, is that good taste? We 
made, we built warnings into the program. The first thing which Michael Parkinson says, said, don't watch, this is disturbing. 20 minutes into the program, he repeats it. And later on, he actually says to a fictitious telephone caller, switch the television on, send your children to bed if they're disturbed. Let, let Mr. Story make a point. Then. I feel the real reason for including that statement from Michael Parkinson is really to create dramatic effect and not really a genuine uh, sort of statement to warn people about the nature of the program. It creates a very heightened sense of drama. Well, just one quick last point. Yeah, you said about betraying the trust. You put up a phone number. 20,000 people phoned that number. I was one of the fortunate people to get through, and all it was said was, I'm sorry, our lines are engaged at the moment. Please try later. Yes, yeah, but I got through to the I'm, number. I'm terribly sorry. I, we, I, I got through. 811, 8181. Right, I got through to the number. That number was staffed by yes. five operators. Right. And I'm sorry, I underestimated. No, Can I please me. make my no, point? No, please. Yes, it's yes, yes. Back. Just, just let, him, let him finish I up and make the point. Um, I underestimated how many people would ring in. As we were making the program, I realized how seriously the supernatural is taken by very many people. I also know from experience that if you flash a number up on television, if you even mention it in any fictional program, a lot of people try it. I thought, I never believed that people would be taken in. Therefore, we did take the precaution to have that number operational, and the calls were vetted by the Society for Psychical Research. We, we've, I'm afraid we've, uh, we've got to leave it there. I'm sorry about that. I just want to say one thing to Richard Brook. Richard, would you do the same thing again? The reaction to the programme led the BBC to place a decade-long ban on the programme being repeated after its initial broadcast. And although this has been lifted, it remains unlikely that it will ever be shown on British television again. The BFI, the British Film Institute, released it on VHS in Region 2 DVD in November 2002. And then it was re-released again more recently for the 20-year anniversary. A number of psychological effects were reported in Ghostwatch's wake. Now, this one's serious. 18-year-old factory worker Martin Denner, who suffered from learning difficulties and had a mental age of 13, committed suicide five days after the program aired. The family home had suffered with a faulty central heating system, which had caused the pipes to knock. Denham linked this to the activity in the show, causing great worry. He left a suicide note reading, If there are ghosts, I will be with you always as a ghost. His mother and stepfather, April and Percy Denham, blamed the BBC. They claimed that Martin was hypnotised and obsessed by the programme. The Broadcasting Standards Commission refused their complaints, along with 34 others, as being outside their remit, but the High Court granted the Denham's permission for a judicial review requiring the BSC to hear its complaint. In its ruling, the BSC stated the BBC had a duty to do more than simply hint at the deception it was practising on the audience. In Ghostwatch, there was a deliberate attempt to cultivate a sense of menace. They ruled that the programme was excessively distressing and graphic, referring to the scratches of the children and their mutilated animals, and they had aired too soon after the 9pm watershed. They further stated that the presence of the programme of presenters familiar with children's programmes took some parents off guard on deciding whether their children could continue to view. Let's just address these one at a time. Okay, the uh, uh, Martin Denham scenario is regrettable. I'm not going to in any way make light of the fact that uh, uh, somebody with emotional uh, issues killed themselves. However, that scenario should not be used as a stick to beat the heads of programming directors with the remit of never ever show us anything frightening. Never show us anything frightening also equates to never challenge us. Never challenge us means never do anything other than produce bland television. We cannot ask that of our entertainment producers. However, at the same time, if you had 
an 18 year old son who had mental issues and there was a fairly frightening looking documentary that was fairly convincing on the BBC in the same way as that guy with his kids you have a responsibility as a parent to decide what your in this case 13 year old watches it was a relinquishing of parental responsibility to suggest that the BBC should be our parents. And also, what is it within the bounds of good taste? Because again, this was levelled at both this show and the Brass Eye. Is it really good taste to contain material that even references child molestation? What, like the news? Every single day. Taste is again subjective. Hello and good evening. And not since Paul Daniels looked as if he'd breathed his last in a seal vault, apparently crushed to death six Halloweens ago, terribly sad, has there been such a fuss? Ghostwatch. My 11-year-old son was left shaking and physically sick after 10 minutes. Prior warning should have been given, so we had some idea of what was to come. And? The BBC should be locked up for such a prank. I guessed halfway through it was a hoax, but people do live in haunted houses. They're frightened enough without being ridiculed by Michael Parkinson. Or? I have a helpline for people in distress, and I received over 300 calls. In fact, I thought Ghostwatch was brilliant. But it was introduced as a drama, and many of the people I helped did not understand that drama means fiction. And thanks to Joe Soton of Staffordshire, for that call because it is, you could say, at the heart of the matter. While we, we search for that uh, piece of tape, uh, let's find out what Sarah's up to. Sarah, did you hear that? Somebody thinks they've seen a presence in the house. Today? You've not noticed anything this evening, have you? No, nothing to report from here yet, except how absolutely useless I am at apple bobbing. Well, it doesn't look much like a stream one, but hardly the sort of stuff to frighten the cat. And it ambled on in this vein for the first 40-odd minutes until things did start to happen. Here's Sarah again, and Suzanne early, now sounding completely different. I don't know what's going on. Can you hear this? Smithy? Michael? Dr. Pascoe? There are, there are incredible noises coming from the walls. And from the ceiling. Susie. Stop it! Stop it, Susie! And hand up those who thought Sarah Green was acting. No, never mind that question. Did it look convincing? OK, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Ghostwatch totally fooled me and scared me half to death. I've never been so terrified in my whole life. Says Linda Beach of Liverpool and... Absolutely brilliant. Says Richard Stewart of Brentwood. My wife and I sat riveted to our seat, believing it was all truly happening. I'm so pleased we didn't spoil the illusion in advance by looking in the Radio Times and realising it was a spoof. Or, if you prefer, MP Parker of Dorset. An arrogant and clumsy dissection of the paranormal... Prejudice for the trivial purpose of providing family entertainment. A sick joke. And for the record, there were on the night a total of 835 calls to the duty office. 382 viewers rang to say it was an insult to their intelligence. 275 thought it in poor taste. Another 62 just had a general moan. And 116 rang to say they thoroughly enjoyed it. No one congratulated Sarah Green on her acting, but perhaps they were too busy worrying if she'd gone missing forever in the cupboard under the stairs. Right, uh, it had aired too soon after the 9pm watershed. It's a watershed. It's a line. The line says after this point, there's going to be scary shit that kids shouldn't be watching. It's not a buffer zone. Mm. And it's it was. It started at 9.30, didn't it? So you, you had half an hour. You had a buffer zone. After the watershed to at get what the kids point is it acceptable to put this on? At what point is it acceptable to build this as anything other than fantasy? Mm. The, these were wounded people affected by this show. A lot of them made to feel stupid because they were taken in by it. And they had every right to be emotionally overwhelmed and angry. They do not have the right 
to demand that this never be shown again. Let us bear in mind, the early 90s was the most neutered, bullless time in terms of television. There was nothing of any danger. There was nothing of any, nothing challenging, nothing... No edge. No edge. Folks listening right now who are in their 30s will remember every single 18-rated film or even 15-rated film being screened by the BBC and ITV at the time was butchered, butchered in the editing rooms. They would take out every instance of bad language and replace it with comically inappropriate substitutions. They, they ruined movies. People listening now will remember the first time they saw Die Hard. If they saw it on, the t- uh, on British TV, it would have been... You are going to be a bad mother crusher. Once I even called him Airhead. I got the muscle to shove enough of this factory so far up your stupid fat nose that you'll blow snow for a year. Frankie blow this bloodsucker's head off. Gasly or there will be trouble. Yeah. But you come quietly or there will be trouble. Oh, damn you. You bloodsucker. Well, listen, Chief. Your company built the freaky thing. Now I gotta deal with it? I don't have time for this baloney. Hand me the keys, you fairy godmother. We would be sloppy. You calling it sloppy? He sound like a great big chicken just waiting to be plucked. Where'd you get that beauty scar, tough guy? Eating pineapple? Yippee-ki-yay, Mr. Falcon. You're a smart little sucker, that's right. Go home, cool off, and that's all you're gonna do. My eyes are wide focused open. I wasn't dating him. I was having sex with him. That's bullcrap. This is bullzone, man. Scuff you. You called my friend a maggot? Freak you. Freak you, Sam Rothstein. Freak you. You are gonna blow me over, aren't you? You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? Terrible, because that film is full of fuck, fuck, fuckly fuck, fuck. But if you replace that with flip, flip, flippity, flip, flip, it's not Die Hard anymore. It's it is not- some weird, perverted... Die Hard in, in a, a tutu. It's not just language either. They would actually remove um, whole sections of scenes yeah. if it was felt And make it nonsensical if it was... Sick. It was years yeah. before I realised what the implication was um, of Rizzo being pregnant in Greece because the scene where she and Kaniki had actually had sex in the car had been cut yeah. from the uh, BBC... Uh, version of people the film, and be, that was the only one I'd seen. People would be killed, not just off camera, but off film. You'd be something. what happened to that guy? And you'd never hear from them again. They'd just never speak of him again. They'd just be this sort of weird, strangled... And they were edited by people who were not professional editors. So they didn't know how to, how to reframe and still make the work powerful. Hmm. Imagine that, folks. Imagine that we were basically being held... Entertainment was being held hostage by complainers and hysterics saying this, this and this was not permissible for TV. What if children watch it? I just stopped watching films on TV at that point. I got heavily into videos because fuck that. Mm. Even as a child, I was incensed by what they did to things like Robocop was a work of comedy genius suddenly. I just didn't notice. (laughs) Fuck me, fuck me. You are going to be one bad mother crusher. Or that bit in Aliens where Vasquez's accent suddenly goes all weird and British. All right, we've got 12 canisters of nerve gas. I say we go in there and blast the whole gosh darn nest. Either way, that was a result of a terrified, 
quartet of channels pandering to the middle. Anyway, let's continue with this. The film's producers argued that Ghostwatch had aired during a drama slot that it was recognisable as fiction to a vast majority and that running disclaimers or other announcements during the programme would have ruined its effectiveness. Which is true. So basically a little um, subtitle comes up going, Reconstruction, not real. <laughs> Dramatisation may not have happened. They also stated that had they anticipated the audience reaction, they would have made its fictional nature clearer. Remember I said 30,000 calls? I think that was probably over time, but on the night, they had five people running the switchboards. Five. And, and they were telling people, it, it's not real. If it's, it's not real. If it's you, turn it off. But most people didn't get them. They got an engaged tongue, which made them think, that everyone had been killed by a ghost? But my point being, people will react to this kind of thing, whether it's fictional or not. Yeah, that's the other thing. They were getting way too het up on the, the specifics of how it went out, going, oh, you said this was going to be uh, real and it wasn't. It actually wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have made any difference, really, had this been put out as a drama. People would still have been scared witless by it. And rightly so. It's very effective. But again, you don't have the... Do you have the right to complain? Everybody has the right to complain. Yeah, no, no. Okay, yeah, you're right. You, you don't have the right to complain about right it. To you don't have the right to say, to be the BBC ought to be locked up. That's an actual quote. The BBC ought to be locked up. What? At what point is the judge going to go, you are charged with betraying the British public and scaring the pants off of them? Clang, 20 years hard labour. No, but you can't, that's the thing. You can say that. You are more than at liberty to say that. What you can't do is expect anybody to listen to you and do what you're asking. Surely the punishment should fit the crime. The BBC should be scared. (laughs) Basically, every single person at the BBC needs to be woken up in the middle of the night with... (laughs) Let's look at the other things briefly that uh, it's clearly influenced. But just, just to make the point about the framing of the show, though, they're not doing anything different from Mary Shelley presenting Frankenstein as a diary. Hmm that effectively could have been the, you know, her century's equivalent of found footage. Bram Stoker presenting Dracula as a series of newspaper articles and diary entries and and ship's journals. It's all presented in a a format of uh, possible reality in order to blur the line between real and pretend because that makes fear more effective. You bring it into an environment that your audience is familiar with and you make it weird. You make it unusual and you make them uncertain where the lines are drawn. That's why it's effective. If you take all that away... If you present it in a highly stylized manner and you chuck the ghost in full in the front of the screen to begin with, it becomes asinine. Even Cub Scout ghost stories hold the ghost back till the end. Mm. That's the basis of horror. You don't show the monster. You don't explain what it is. It's all about the unknown. But also, those um, uh, sort of round-the-fireside type ghost stories, they're always... You know, somebody who escaped from a mental hospital near here or some guy who mm. um, ran away from prison and he, he took his hook for a hand with him and he he's known to prowl these very lovers' lanes. Oh, I'm a monster! You know, it, it's, that's, that's the point. That's part of what makes it scary. Mm. 
But that's another thing. Another one of the complaints from uh, this these chaps uh, on um, you check out the BBC's bite back on this. On uh, I think I'll put the links up in the uh, show notes. Um, they were the person was saying, and you presented this in the living rooms of the people of England and you shouldn't have done that because it makes it too close to home. No, they should have done that because that's really effective. That brings it out of the haunted house and puts it in somewhere far too similar and far too close to us. The reason that we all freaked out as kids was because it was being presented in a normal suburban house with things so mundane that all you then had to do was shroud them in shadow and we would be jumping at those shadows for the rest of our childhoods. You, I mean, you look at something like the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. By the time that Obviously came out... Obviously influenced by this as well. Yeah, and by the time that came out in this country, most people knew that it was not real. But that's not the point. It was still extremely effective. It was still very scary because of the way it was put across by the people in it. But the first time I saw it was um, on DVD in a room rather full of other people's pot smoke, which mm. messed my head up severely. Yeah. It was not the best way to take in that film for you the first time. You should not have inhaled. I, 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 to not inhale in that room, I probably would have had to just hold my breath and hope for the best. The other two things that it's clearly influenced are Most Haunted with uh, Derek Cora, which uh, I watched for several episodes and just gave up because I was sick to death of seeing a little tiny dust moat and people going, oh, look at that, and talking about it for a full 30 minutes. Like, could it be a ghost? No, it's a speck of dust reflecting light. Also, Yvette Fielding, commonly known for being a children's TV presenter. Peter, yeah. Um, But yeah, the, the, the thing was that this work of fiction was so much more scary than uh, Most Haunted, which after ep- series after series failed to produce a single ghost. Um, but doesn't Most Haunted have that little disclaimer that it says this is presented for entertainment purposes? Yeah, but at the same time, they they can't they can't bullshit in Most Haunted. They can't have someone lurch out of the shadows in a ghost mask. Well, no. Um, they're, they're not trying to scare people. They're doing it for an... ostensibly scientific purposes, and once again, still not coming up with uh, with the goods. Uh, speaking of not coming up with the goods, Darren Brown uh, with his seance uh, based uh, a lot of the uh, that that was again uh, one that was dramatised by himself, um, and he has uh, admitted that that was very much inspired by Ghostwatch. Um, so let's actually talk about. We'll call it a film, shall we? Because it's an, it's ninety minutes, yeah, and it's a piece of drama. Yeah, it's a feature length drama. More um, so, what is dated about it? Other than Sarah Green's wardrobe, um, or indeed Sarah Green, because <laughs> um, it's like it's going back in time when you see her there. It's like, wow, I'm a kid again. I think which helps. Frankly. One of um, one of the reasons that I think there wouldn't have been much point in them showing it in the intervening years, even if it hadn't been banned. Mm-hmm is that there is a slight naivety about a lot of it that I don't think people would have swallowed after a certain point in the 90s. Yeah. And certainly not now, not with communication. I was saying this yesterday. Basically, you could not show this to kids these days, even updated, because they'd be tweeting each other and going, this is bullshit, obviously. Maybe so. No, you, you you can't take in people like like that now. Mm. There's just too much. It's like um, the Blair Witch Project hit just at the time the internet was becoming um, 
big mm. and that it was one of the first really successful viral marketing campaigns for a movie mm. and so it got a lot of people going oh have you seen this and read all the history about the stuff like Rustin Parr the child molester and then the uh, ghost of a dead woman and it's all very much ties in with the same thing and people sort of got swept up in the fiction of it and your mind fills in all the blanks I think one thing that but has... But with kids, you can Wikipedia it all and go, there are no blanks, it's just bollocks. I think one um, one thing that did date specifically for me watching it um, last night was uh, that the American chap, the sceptic, mm. who they bring in... There was a picture he's... of New York behind him at night. It would be mid-afternoon, yeah. if technically it um, was the, the right time. There's that. But the way um, the um, uh, the parapsychologist, Dr. Pasco, is it? Yeah. Um, the way she refers to him she calls him the last or she says skeptics are basically the last of the materialists and there's this sort of this old they represent the terrible corporations and we all hate them don't we kids it, it gets ridiculously pantomime the cynic is uh it would be um it would have been about five thirty p.m in new york city in even in late october it wouldn't have been that dark really yeah okay um the the cynic is cynic skeptic is presented like I said cartoonishly so that you're supposed to go yeah fuck you and your cynicism I'm gonna believe now almost belligerently mm-hmm. like it sort of puts you in the in the uh, position of of actually w- especially after it turns out to be a hoax it's almost like the sort of letdown of ah oh, I wanted to see a ghost and then they deliver the ghost mm-hmm. I, I asked for some. Uh, respondents on this. Uh, Daniel Millward said, I remember realising it was fake thanks to the god-awful child actors. <laughs> That's a fair point. Would you say they were that bad? They weren't that bad, but I think the, the point at which um, it unclicks, as it were, is that um, Kimmy, the younger girl, there's a point early on in the show where she is very over childlike for her age. I think she was about nine, mm. um, and she's acting like a five year old. Yeah. She's I've been a picture. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very childish voice, snuggling up to her mummy. Later on in the show, all of a sudden she becomes much more nine years old. Mm. And it's. Inconsistency. It's, exactly, yeah. But the um, other thing is also. I, I know that's it's not a really trope. a dating It's a trope for kids to not be totally fucking freaked out by things that would freak out an adult. But the way she describes pipes is shit your pants scary. And I can't think... I, I, I just... I can't... I can never relate to kids in films who talk about, uh, you know, oh, the, he's the man with the one eye. And they're just really kind of cool with it. Uh, you know who I do relate to? Cole in The Sixth Sense. I was just going to say. Scared out of his scared wits. shitless out of everything he saw. <laughs> So, yeah, um, Sixth Sense, probably going to do that at some point soon as well. Very, very good ghost story. Um, but, yeah, the, uh, the the mother and the two girls, not Oscar winning. But I, kind of watching it again, it helps a bit that they're a bit crap. Mm. Because if they were too good, then your brain would go, this is real, this is real. But, you see, this is the other thing. If you, I mean, this is one of the things I said before. Sarah Green actually delivers her her part mm. very naturalistically. Mm. Mike Smith as well, and Craig Charles too. Yeah. It's not particularly that they're brilliant, but because of what Saturday entertainment was like in those days, mm. the way that they were a little bit crap and a little bit silly and, and the jokes very were a little bit bad and very yeah. exactly. It wasn't so much that it was fantastic acting. 
But it was the kind of naff light entertainment acting yeah. that you were used to seeing them deliver. Especially it's like, we can't deliver any goods. Uh, let's muck about a bit. Mm. That's what we got Craig Charles here for. Keep, keep the proles entertained. Although the bit where he jumps out of the cupboard, much less scary this time than I remember it being. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose just seeing Craig Charles at all, not being fat and grey and old and beardy. Um, That's true. And the fact that we've been watching Red Dwarf until it comes out of our ears lately, probably. Yeah. Um, which I recommend, folks. Helped with that. Oh, the only a lot other of people thing... said that Doctor Pascoe was actually um, unconvincing as well. Uh, there are parts where she's she's she loses it a bit. I think she's an actress. She gets too dramatic. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and, and she does a lot of acting. Convince, yeah. Um, but the the thing that got me this time, which I'd never noticed before, and this is probably just due to knowing more about um, uh, audiovisual technology than I used to. Mm-hmm. There are some scenes in the film that are ostensibly thermal imaging. Yeah. And they switch to an effect where it looks like. It's picking, up it's, heat. it's picking up heat. However, there is one scene that completely shoots this illusion in the foot, which is where Sarah Green flicks a lighter on. Mm-hmm. Then she walks in front of a mirror, and you can see the flame in the mirror, which if the camera was picking up the heat, you wouldn't be able to. That's a fine point, actually. That's a very fine point. Well, I don't know what the effect is called, but basically it renders everything into um, uh, primary colours. But that sequence does feel very Blair Witch because they pull out all the sound. Mm. So it's just Sarah Green talking and and you get the the camera there. And um, it's it's very claustrophobic. It also Mm. feels a bit like the first and the good wreck. Dot wreck, do you remember that one? Yeah. Before it went it's, shit it's not, with its sequel. It's not ineffective in what it creates. It's just that, like I said, if you know what thermal imaging actually looks like and does, then mm. you realise that it's not thermal imaging. But the, the atmosphere that is created by what they're doing still works, I think. Yeah. This one from Alistair Stewart. Oh, God, that's a full-on sleep with the lights on one for me. So every time Alistair watches Ghost Watch, he has to sleep with the lights on. Well, Alistair, me too. Because, as I recall, back in 2002, when I saw this, had to sleep with the lights on. When I saw the woman in black, had to sleep with the lights on. When I saw this last night, lights on. Tried it without the lights on, didn't like it. Turned the lights back on about 2am. Derek Ritchie says, I remember watching Ghostwatch. Do I do it in Scottish? Don't do it in his accent. Okay. I remember watching Ghostwatch <laughs> when I was younger and more recently on DVD. I have no idea whether it was because I was a cocky youngster or more curious persuasion that drew me to wanting to watch it, but I do remember feeling deeply uncomfortable during its running time. This was mostly helped by me knowing nothing about it. I know the basic outline and the premise, but by that I was blind to everything else going on. And that ultimately helped in dragging my feelings through the ringer for what was actually not that long a show. Now, I did mention that it felt agonisingly long yesterday. It really does feel long. For You know when you watch something fun and it just whips by like that? Um, this, it, I suppose it was the opposite of fun. It was just so tense the whole way through for 92 minutes. It's like, oh God, come on. Oh, there's like 50 minutes left of it. But they do sustain the tension pretty well. Yeah. They, they have a good, there's a good rhythm to it. They build it up a bit and then something silly happens and the tension diffuses a little bit and then it builds up again and there's this constant wave effect for the first 45 minutes and then when things actually start happening, I, I think they did a really good job of maintaining it. Like I said, dragged for me. But not, not like I didn't want, yeah, no, I didn't want to watch it. <laughs> I'll be honest, I've been very, very tense and on tenterhooks about this all week, and uh, even just talking about it. But then again, talking about it also helps because it allows you to um, fix in your mind the things that you've got misgivings about. Uh, while I was watching it, I felt like I was 
this is from Derek again. While I was watching it, it felt like I was going on all night, but in reality, and certainly on the repeat, it was not all. It was not that long at all. The whole mystery meant that everything that went on felt so instantly shocking that, in truth, I hated watching it. But I felt no desire to stop because I wanted to know what the hell was going on. I have to give the team that created this and the presenting team with immense credit for the huge and detailed amount of planning they had to do here. I feel this was aimed at my sort of age range, the young teens to early twenties, where my imagination filled in all the gaps for me as with horrendous ideas going back to it now it has lost all its impact with my older self more uh, spent more time trying to work out the logistics of what they did instead of being scared or feeling any form of nerves even though it hit every cliche in the book that uh, did not seem to matter at all the possession section in particular scared the crap out of me on first viewing at the with the young actress really putting in a great showing to my young eyes and ears she wasn't doing the voice that was actually director leslie manning uh, she had to, she got several voice actors on to try to do the pipes voice, but no one could get the right conditions, so she just went on to do it himself. I kind of felt that this was a time and place show. For those that watched it on the first showing, I think most came out of it with a fear of the room they were falling asleep in when the light was turned out, despite the inner voice telling them it was just a TV program. But I do not think that would happen now, at least not to the same degree. With the advent of more gory type of horror and shows like Most Haunted, the public knowledge of this is much wider and does not seem to be unusual anymore. Certainly not as shocking with the idea of horror now much more desensitised than when I was younger. See, that's the interesting thing. The more gory it is for me, the less scary it is. Mm. The more effective stuff is entirely psychological in nature. Gore means fuck all Well, the more gore, the more evident it is that it's not real. The more evident it is that the person making the film doesn't have any ideas left. Mm. Apart from, what was it, what's the hierarchy that you tried? Stephen King mentioned Oh, um, yeah, if you, right, hang on a minute. The The ideal, as a horror creator, is to terrify your audience. If you can't terrify them, go for horrifying them. And if you can't horrify them, gross them out. Gross them out. And gross outs, uh, somewhere between horrify and gross out is where the torture porn lies because there's a psychological element to who would do that. Mm. Um, but some of it gets so ridiculous that you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake. And if you say, oh, for fuck's sake, you're neither terrified nor horrified. You're just grossed out or left in a sense of ugh. And of course, the same things aren't going to affect the same people in the same way. Something that might terrify me might just gross you out. Yeah. And there's going to be plenty of people who actually would watch this and go, oh, for fuck's sake. And rightfully so, horror, like humour, is subjective. Mm, Absolutely. And it's more about what it opens... I mean, this whole thing about not being able to go to sleep with the lights on, it's about what it opens up in your mind and what it makes you think about and the, the sort of things that it brings to the surface for you. Good... I hesitate to use the word entertainment. Good media engages you and opens things up in your own head that you then have to resolve. Yeah, and although I was also uh, watching this with a very technical mind and going, aha, I see what they did there, aha, 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 that didn't kill the uh, illusion for me. In fact, I was basically, it was, uh, I was able to see pretty much the entirety of the architecture of the almost Victorian level uh, illusion of convincing people that uh, spiritual and supernatural occurrences could occur, Mm. could exist. But I think a degree of that is to do with the fact that, that you and I, to a, a probably slightly lesser extent, enjoy thinking about the formulation of fiction and um, creative works. I mean, I, I've 
studied theatre and, and the, the whole getting your audience to suspend their disbelief is an art form. And I can look at a set of tricks designed to fool people and rather than going, ah, oh, how dare you, that's pathetic, think that's really, really clever, that's incredibly impressive. One of the reasons that I love The Prestige is that it's, it's not about what's real it's about what you want to see mm. and how much you will let the creator convince you of nobody can make that see that's the, something that kept coming into my mind with all these people who complained when we watched the, the snippets of bite back and points of view and all that kind of thing nobody can make you feel stupid unless you let them I do love what you said about the prestige, though, there, because there, there, there are all three of the steps of a magic trick in this. There's the pledge, we're going to show you a ghost. There's the turn, when the ghost reveals itself. But you don't, you're not supposed to know that the ghost has revealed itself. And then there's the prestige, where all the bells and whistles happen. Yeah. But without the pledge... It's meaningless. It's meaningless. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at what passes for horror these days. I mean, we have talked about this before. Horror films these days, by and large, are shit. They tend to be just a meat market for teenagers. Yeah. Or Here are some teenagers. Just... Don't you hate them so much? Yeah! You want us to kill them? Yeah! Well, we will. <laughs> and guess what we're going to do? We're going to use... The modus operandi of a film that happened in 1981. See, and that's the other thing. that They keep remaking horror films that have already been made. Ergo, nothing unknown about them anymore. No. But again... Freddy was scariest in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. There's no done, point doing more. If it's done effectively, that's not the point. You can still do those stories in an effective way. Paranormal Activity... Obviously influenced by this, and it actually did really well to begin with, really sort of building itself up. But then it got to the end, and it went, "We don't know what to do. Um, oh, we'll just go for this trope, shall we?" And it actually, it didn't even know what trope to go for. There's like four multiple endings to it, not three endings to it, uh, and none of them are satisfactory. They're just sort of, "Oh, you went with that one," or "Oh, you went with that one," or uh, "Oh, you went with that one." Mm. <laughs> but none of it makes you go, "Oh shit!" Like. A really good horror film. I, I've got to say, Blair Witch Project really still holds up today. We watched this um, a few months ago, as I recall, and uh, uh, the not delivering the gruey monster at the end, really effective. But Paranormal Activity has had 72 sequels since it came out just one year ago. And the horror genre is replete with sequel after sequel after sequel after sequel for any of its successful uh, franchise. Franchises, that's the thing. They become franchises because the first one's successful. Saw so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, then they remake, then start with the sequels to the remakes. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, remake, then the other remake, then the sequels to the other remakes. And then the prequels to the sequels. It's horror. It's about the unknown. If you know about it, it's no longer horror. It's just, I hate teenagers. I'd like to see them get killed. But the constant milking of horror has devalued horror. And it's almost like actual suspense needs to be given its own subgenre of something that makes a clear statement, we have not been sullied by this. Well, if you look at what I would consider to be particularly effective ghost stories specifically mm. that we've seen in, in recent decades... The Woman in Black, 
was extremely effective, extremely well done. Um, the others, mm. massively tense. Um, and uh, you The know, Orphanage. The Orphanage. Oh, God, that's amazing. And Devil's Backbone as well. Mm. Brilliant films. Absolutely brilliant. And, and the whole... The whole premise of those is it's not about something that can tear your arm off. It's not about something that can, you know, spike you in the eye and leave you gruey and bleeding on the floor. It's not body horror. No, it's it's to do with or fear of mutilation. incredibly deep loss and um, how having lost something or someone or some feeling of safety, the memories of that loss linger so vividly mm. that it has claws in your mind for the rest of your life and possibly beyond. You're right. All of those ones we mentioned, they're all about loss. Whoa. From Mark Ord on that note, I'm a huge fan of ghosts in literature and on TV and film. Do I believe in ghosts? Certainly not. But that doesn't stop me from enjoying the genre. In fact, I personally think I've become something of a connoisseur of the genre and have become somewhat obsessed with what makes a good short ghost story. As a child who grew up in the 70s and early 80s, I experienced Ghost Watch when it first broadcast, and personally, I actually was never that impressed with it. It was a lovely touch having Michael Parkinson, Mike Smith and Sarah Green presenting the show, all of whom were well-known TV presenters at the time. Unfortunately, it was the production that let it down, with incredibly poor actors portraying the family and BBC production crew. So when this was first shown, it became abundantly clear to me that it was utter nonsense. I was even more astonished at the complaints that this show gathered while watching Points of View the following Sunday tea time. What used to scare the shite out of me as a kid was the ghost story for Christmas that used to be shown on BBC Two. I remember my dad actually letting me stay up late one night on Christmas Eve to watch these, and they had an effect on me. They were just dramatisations of the master of the ghost story, M.R. James's work, and they were brilliant. They also did an adaptation of Dickens' best ghost story, not A Christmas Carol, but The Signalman. Chilling stuff, and all available on YouTube. And that, my friends, is what we're watching for Halloween. We're also going to watch the stone tape. We'll let you know what that was like. Creative sounds. Mr. Pipes himself, because that's what everyone obsesses about regarding Ghostwatch, because that's what you're scared of. Everything else about it is very eerie. Pipes gave a face and a, a force to actually sort of focus that on and focus the fear on and, and the thing that you were afraid of. Uh, and he actually made multiple appearances, and we're going to tell you where you can find these on uh, Wikipedia as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, if if you've already watched it once, but feel like going back into Vimeo or your DVD and watching and checking for where he appears, you can find him here. He is a ghost described by characters in the program as a disfigured androgynous person wearing a buttoned-up robe or dress appearing a total of eight times during the course of the film. These are often fleeting, almost subliminal appearances and can be found by skipping ahead to the following points. During the playback of the haunted bedroom footage at the 21-minute mark, in the studio, the presenters examined video footage of bedroom scene in which a shadowy figure can be seen behind the curtains in the bedroom of Suzanne and Kim early. Three vote. Now, this is very smart, the way they do it. The first, at the beginning of the show, you watch it, and it's just 
a bedroom. Then when you watch it a second time, they very, very subtly impose the figure of a man into the footage. And then the third time, it's not there at all. And so you're thinking, hang on, did I see that? Was that there? And so they were playing with the minds of of, uh, of the viewers. They were, if you were wise and savvy to it, and you had several video recorders in your house, you could have recorded it. And knowing what was going to happen, you could have rewound it and checked the footage as you were going and gone. These are three different versions of it. But people didn't know. They were, did I see something there? Oh no, I must not have done. Which is exactly what plays into your fear when you're lying awake at night and you see, as Parkinson said, a dressing gown on the back of your door, and you go, "That's the st- person." St- oh, it's my dressing gown. Is it my dressing gown though? Or is it a person? And then you do that for most of the night. In the stu- Repeatedly check behind the curtains just to make sure. Yes. Or just like hit them with a poker like Scrooge. <laughs> In the studio at the 30 minute mark and 50 seconds behind Dr. Pascoe as she plays the possessed voice tape for Michael Parkinson. This appearance is more easily visible if the brightness of the screen is increased. Now you pointed that out you, and I said it was, said a, it was statue. A, a statue. But, um, Apparently that was Mr. Pipes. Yeah. Among the crowds in at the 47-minute mark. Now, this obviously went straight past so many people because it's done so surreptitiously and cheekily. Outside the house in Fox Hill Drive, as Craig Charles calls for Arthur Lacey to join him, the ghost could be seen standing amongst the crowd of onlookers, apparently unnoticed. Now, you mentioned that this was effectively breaking their internal logic because Craig Charles then talks to Arthur Lacey, who tells him that he's a really, really good psychic and he can sense that when ghosts are nearby, there was one standing right next to him. So either they're breaking their logic or the guys are fraud. I have to say that that one, objectively for me, is the least impactful one because it's the least questionable. He's very obviously there. He's, he's a, being he's affected as by the camera lights. As everybody stood around And him. it also brings to your mind a little uh, image in your head of the crowds all going, who's this bloke here? Yeah. Oh, he's the ghost. Right, he's just going to stand there or freak everybody out if yeah. they spot the, him. The, the reason it's subtle is because the camera pans past him so fast, but he is very obviously there. However, it was emphasised by the fact that when he turned up, you grabbed my arm. I didn't grab your arm. I went, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, banging my arm in the process, which of course made me leap three feet in the air. Okay, um, in the kitchen at the 54 minute and 59 second mark, reflected in the glass of the kitchen door, moments after Sarah discovers the children's drawings on the floor and is startled by a cat outside. Basically, um, the camera pans around and you can see standing between the cameraman and Sarah Green, Mr. Pipes. I uh, said so at that point, fuck me! Uh, just... You know, I've seen the footage before, but, you know, it's while the tension's mounting up, it's the sort of thing that sort of... Uh, it's it's all like these tiny little relief moments that at the same time, like, he's lurking, he's lurking. There he is! Oh, fuck! Haunted bedroom at 1 hour, 11 minutes, 56 seconds. In front of the curtains in the girls' bedroom as the house is evacuated, the ghost is briefly visible as the cameraman turns, but is gone again when he whips the camera back round for a second look. It's very clever, and they were wondering, people were wondering if this was to do with like a, a cunning visual composite work or something expensive like that, but it was just the old Victorian trick of he stands there, and then when the camera comes back, he's knelt down behind the bed. And under the stairs at 1 hour 17 and 12, and this is the bit that made most people shit themselves because the it was led up to in such a long, slow, deliberate way. They very slowly pull the plank off the uh, door, 
Uh, this is after obviously all the shit started happening already and the cats are screaming and the lights are all going out and then the cupboard door very slowly begins to open up and be like, oh my god, and it's basically one of the most primal fears since the first door was invented. You open the door and there's something there that shouldn't be. Yeah, you open the door very, very slow and something there that shouldn't be and it's dark and that basically is a primal fear encoded in our DNA. And it made everyone go, oh shit, because you only see him like a half a second, half of the side of his head from quite a distance, and it's shrouded in shadow. But it's enough to go, oh fuck! And then they very carefully explode crap, and at this exact point, this is when the mirror falls down, and it's, it's, you know, lots of stuff goes on at that stage, and, uh, if it, like I said, it, that's when he gets out properly. Um, and then close up in the static, and this is, um, after that, just before the very, very end of the show, um, at the, in a burst of static, just as the cupboard door slams shut, sealing both Suzanne and Sarah inside the glory hole, this appearance only lasts for three frames, but provides a partial close-up look of the ghost's mauled face. I missed that one completely. It's basically a pfft-like moment. Um, and then on the gantry, uh, exactly one second afterwards... In the TV studio as the lights start to explode. Almost like he's gone into the machine and then out the other side into the studio. Although apparently he was there already. Just being summoned to the studio by the fact that his tape's in there. And that again, uh, somewhere deep down in many of our heads, there's this idea that just talking about ghosts, just thinking about ghosts, especially specific ones, will somehow alert them to us and will draw them to us. Maybe not those specifically, but will actually attract some kind of activity to us. Well, yeah, it's speak of the devil and he shall appear. Yeah. Again, dealing with very, very uh, ingrained fears. Mm. And that is an extremely effective way of making sure that those fears continue and can continue to be used. Because if you prevent people from talking about things, then you prevent them from addressing and dealing with what's really frightening them. I mean, like you said, the whole thing about the lights going out, that's a very primal fear because if the fire went out, a mountain lion would possibly come and kill you. Mm. And you wouldn't be able to see it coming because your eyes would be adjusted to the firelight. Mm. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why being in darkness is something that on a basic, unevolved human level is meant to terrify us because yeah. it's something that we need to avoid in order to not die. We were encouraged to stay by the fires so as not to go wandering out. Absolutely. And that's and why in horror movies people do the things that they're not supposed exactly. to do. They wander into they're territory. cautionary that... tales. That's the whole point. All horror movies need to be sub- re-subtitled Teenagers are Idiots. Yeah. Not all, I'm not saying teenagers are idiots, no, but that's the but thing the horror that horror stories seem to be yeah. constantly saying. Another thing that I hadn't realised until I saw it last night for that may make people really feel unsettled by the programme is about the way it ends. The mother and the youngest daughter get away. Get away. Go leave the house. So I can't... I don't believe the mother would leave Suzanne there. She tried to go back and they stopped her. Yeah. Um, But before that, before... uh, After Suzanne's spoken in a really scary voice, she says, in Suzanne's voice... Go away then, leave, you're going to mess everything up anyway. And that relates to the fact that her mother is fairly recently divorced. This is to do with uh, trauma that um, they've already experienced, emotional and just familial trauma of having a family split asunder. And she says, I hate you. And that's not resolved. 
It's not like Finding Nemo, where Nemo says that at the beginning, and then the whole film is about Marlon trying to get Nemo back so that they can be reunited. That's not resolved. I hate you, and then that's it. And no one ever talks about that, but that's a huge aspect of it. But that's, that's the last thing Suzanne says, and then she's in the cupboard crying. She might actually be dead, and in fact, the next layer of the onion for the Mr. Pipe spirit, which is actually, from the sounds of it... Dating way back into prehistory, uh, various different energies, layer upon layer upon layer, of which Sevens and Tunstall are merely the most recent two. That's another reason why I like it. Yes. It's a deeply unsettling ending, and it leaves you with the shivers, because it doesn't give you that sort of wonderful kind of, ah, and then everything was okay, or even just, and then they all died. It leaves you with a, what happened then? Which is some of the best horror films end on a, what happened then? One of the issues I have with paranormal activity is that they go, that happened then. No matter what happens. Insidious. Started out with a great premise, but became terrible at the end. In fact, it ended up being like the mighty boosh at one point, which is not scary. You know, when it, 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 turned, it, like, it turned out the demon thing was Black Frost. Oh, crikey! Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... But yeah, the actual... It, this is commendable as a, a piece of horror work. And I'm very interested to hear viewer feedback. I want people to go away. I want kids to go away, frankly, and come back and tell me what they think of this. People who weren't there at the time. I want Americans to come back. Most of the... We're not recommending 10-year-olds watch this, by the way. Christ, no. When we say kids, we mean like 15-ish. Ish. Maybe a bit older. Because at the same time, we do still want to hit the same demographic, just... 21 years on. Yeah. We old. When we say kids, we don't really mean kids' kids. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I want to hear what Americans think of this. And uh, I, I could understand how about 70% of you will go, it's bollocks. But 30% of you might think this is really, really effective. And if you've listened this far, probably slightly lower because we've just told you everything about it. <laughs> Unless you already listened and then listened to us and now you're thinking but, about responding. But what I would say is try and think about it in terms of is it dramatically effective no. rather than is it realistically convincing? Yeah. Don't take it as a sort of a... I mean, we've all seen so many found footage uh, documentaries now mm. on, on every subject and uh, it's, it's no longer a really an effective technique. It's still, however, more effective than a lot of straight-out horror movies. Than most, mm. frankly. But a lot of that, I think, is to do more with the um, as in this the, the technical approaches. With found footage, you can use camera tricks like it's very shaky and you can't really see what's going mm. on, or the camera is down here in the corner and you only get a tiny little bit of what's actually Leaving happening. You Again, it gives you that framework in which your mind fills in the blanks. It's not about the fact that you're sitting there going, well, this might be real and these people might actually be dead and these terrible things might have happened to them. That's That's not the point. When you sit down to watch something, you are suspending your disbelief for the duration mm. of watching that. Does it Same as simply being you? told a ghost story. If you're being told a ghost story and it's about people who... And it's being told in a way that, you know, Martin and Brenda went to this house. And it's like, did this actually happen? It doesn't matter whether it actually happened. It's a ghost story. Yeah. But does it reward you for suspending your disbelief for the, the duration of that story? Yeah. Or does it leave you ultimately unsatisfied? Okay, I think that'll pretty much about do it for Ghost Watch. And we are done with ghostly goings-on. And next week we will be back with Iron Man 3.
the continuance of our Avengers podcast. This will be the first of the Phase 2 episodes, with uh, the second being the week after with Thor The Dark World. And then next year we'll be doing Captain America The Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, followed finally in 2015 by Avengers Age of Ultron. And after those two episodes, I will be doing a very special episode on my new book, which will be going out on Kindle around about that time, and will be available via Gonzo Planet as an audiobook. Check out the forums for all further news on that, and if you have backstage Gonzo access, you'll be able to read it and listen to it right now. Sharon, thank you very, very much for sharing this one with me. No problem. Thank you very much for listening to me. And if you'd like to find out more about Ghostwatch, the best place to go would be to a documentary about it, which was constructed over several years of interviews uh, by a man named Rich Lorden, who was originally a viewer. It's available on DVD for just under £15 delivered from his website. It's called Ghostwatch Behind the Curtains. <laughs> you have to forgive me, folks. I did not sleep well last night. Happy Halloween! Get off me! Round and round the garden, like a teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs>